Dakotans, welcome to the Dakota Rustler Show, aiming to keep America, its citizens, and minds free. Now, here's your host, Daryl Root. Ah, thank you, Arabelle, for that lovely introduction. We got a lot of things to cover and a short time to do it. So let me start with a couple opening statements before I get to the main topic. Condolences to the family affected by the shootings in Atlanta and Boulder, Colorado. It's certainly a terrible thing when these things happen. Unfortunately, uh, Democrats think the answer is banning guns. However, that's not the answer. If you take notice, these shootings rarely occur in places such as gun stores, gun shows, or other places where weapons are likely to be involved in mass numbers. Uh, They almost always happen where guns are unlikely to be, be it grocery stores, churches, schools. You know, these things didn't happen back in the 50s and 60s either when young children regularly were seen with BB guns, shotguns, slingshots, and other sorts of miscellaneous quote-unquote weapons. You know, it's a society issue. It's not a Second Amendment issue. Banning guns is certainly not the answer. Uh, Second, Christy Noem. She just signed a bill that would give herself and various government workers high up in the South Dakota government pay raises. You know, I mean, this isn't right either. I mean, we got the high more murderer. Well, let's call him the high more killer. You know, in office yet, he needs to resign. This is a bill that never should have been signed. Third, I am the treasurer of the Libertarian Party of South Dakota, as some of you may know. I was at their convention this past Saturday, March 20th. And I just want to congratulate the new executive committee members. Some have already been there. Others are new. Some switch positions. Quick shout out to Greg Baldwin, Colin Duprell, Ashley Strand, myself, Devin Saxon, Steve Minogue, Kent Wilsey, Adam Jewell, and Tracy Quint. You can visit lpsouthdakota.org for more information. It should be updated soon if it hasn't been already. Now, let's get to the main topic, which is something I call BIC, B-I-C, just like the pen, BIC. What does it stand for? It stands for Blatant Intentional Confusion. The C could stand for complexity, or it could stand for that other word, cluster expletive expletive deletive, but we're just going to use confusion for now. What is it? It's when governments pass so many laws, not even the experts can follow them. And it benefits corporations, and it punishes the little guy. Now let's use an example of this. Let's take the IRS, Title 26 in federal government. You may have heard that the government, the IRS, has 70,000 pages of rules and regulations and statutes. Well, that's not quite true. It's kind of a misnomer. Statutes from the IRS actually consist of approximately 2,600 pages. So if you're going to file your taxes, 
you're going to want to use an accountant who is familiar with all 2,600 pages. Well, that's 2,600 pages containing a lot of information. I'd say it's pretty hard for anybody to memorize 2,600 pages of information. But even if he does, is that good enough? Well, no, because all those statutes come with rules and they come with regulations. And if you add those pages, you've got 9,000 pages now. And an example, you can deduct your home mortgage interest. However, it comes with rules and regulations. There's usually a maximum, maybe a minimum. So you have to know all those rules and regulations that go with those statutes. Now, is it enough for an accountant, a tax accountant, to know those 9,000 pages? Well, yes and no. It may be good for the normal guy, but for the guy in business, the IRS accountant who's going to fight for you should you ever be audited, you have to consider case law. Well, when you include the most common case laws for IRS, now we're up to the 70, 75,000 pages because if your accountant is going to defend you against an audit, he has to be familiar with case law or at least know where to look at for them. So as you can see, the IRS is very complex and it creates a lot of confusion. And how does this benefit the corporation and hurt the little guy? Well, it's quite simple. Corporations that make billions and billions of dollars, they can afford to hire high-priced IRS tax accountants. The little guy can't. It's plain and simple. And just to give you an idea of how many pages this is, it's said that the average person speaks about 100 words per minute and can read at about 250 words per minute. Well, if you read nonstop 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it would take you eight weeks to read 70,000 pages. And how much of that do you think you would retain? Probably very little. EPA. EPA, which falls under Title 40, back in 2016 had over 27,000 pages of rules and regulations. OSHA, which is Title 29 in the Federal Register, is over 3,000 pages, and quite honestly, I'm surprised it's not a lot more than that. You know, OSHA is the organization, well, the business entity, well, the government entity, let me speak correctly, that oversees safety in the workplace. So I'm really amazed it's not more than 3,000 pages. The Code of Federal Regulation and Federal Register itself, which covers pretty much everything, is over 185,000 pages long. The index alone is over 1,100 pages. So that gives you an idea of how much federal regulation there is. How, many, how much regulation is there in one year? 
Let's break it down into that. In 2016, 3,853 rules and regulations were passed in a total of 214 bills. That works out to 18 rules and regulations for every law that is passed. And that actually is a low number because over the long term, it works out to 27 rules per law. So every time government passes a law, every time something is signed into law, phrase it however you want, there's going to be an average of 27 new rules and regulations that go with it. Since 1995, 88,899 rules have passed. And that's not counting what Joe Biden has just done. So we're probably at 90,000 rules as of this point, just in the last 25 years. Can we break it down into single regulations, single rules and regulations and bills? Well, in November of 19, the federal regulations released for online education providers was 519 pages long. So if you wanted to open up a online education site, you would have to go through nine, 519 pages of information that you needed to be familiar with. Now, let's get into how this affects corporations and how it hurts the little guy. Okay, let's say company A, corporation A, makes widgets. And until they get their supplies, they pay for labor, they pay for overhead with offices and payroll and everything that goes into it, trucks, the whole kit and caboodle. Let's say it costs $100 per widget. And the company wants to make a 5% profit. They now have to charge $105 get that 5% profit. So they're making $5 per widget, 5% profit margin. That's pretty much average in the world of business. The little guy who can't afford to buy in bulk, can't afford the big fancy equipment to make widgets, is going to depend a lot more on labor instead of machinery. So he may, it may cost him $110 to make those widgets. So he's already at a disadvantage. Now, where does regulation benefit the corporation and hurt the little guy? Well, it's rather simple. If regulations add an extra 20% to the cost of making widgets, the corporation is now being faced with a $120 cost. A 5% profit margin on that is now $6.00. Instead of $5, that's a 20% increase in profit. It's only a 1% increase in overall expenditures, but it's a 20% increase in profit. The little guy, on the other hand, if you're bumping up his cost of making that widget from, say, 110 to 130 well, he's going to be a lot more hard-pressed to meet those regulations. Four out of five businesses that start up end up 
failing because lack of capital, lack of management, they can't afford to hire the big fancy lawyers to deal with regulations. So corporations actually benefit from regulation and the little guy gets hurt by it. And they actually make more profit with those regulations because they pass on the cost to the consumer and they can maintain that 5% profit margin even though they're making more profit. So do you see where I'm going with it? They're making a bigger profit, but because it's the same percentage, they can come out to the public and say, our profit margin is the same as it ever was. Now let's get back to the IRS a little bit. The income tax was implemented in 1913. The tax code was 27 pages long. The income tax was 1% on income over $3,000, if I recall correctly. So imagine that, 27 pages long. In the last 100 and plus years, we've multiplied that by 100-fold to 2,600 pages. And of course, as I said, there's the, all the extra rules and regulations that go with it. There's all the case law that goes with it. You know, the little guy can't afford the lawyers for that. Liberals and conservatives, they all like to argue that regulations are for your safety. Simple fact is, it's not for your safety. It's for the corporate benefit. As I just explained, it benefits the corporation and it hurts the little guy. Your safety is actually determined by the corporate knowledge that if they sell a faulty product or a service, sooner or later the word spreads and they lose business. What do I mean by that? Okay, so-and-so, again, we get back to corporate A selling widgets. If you buy those widgets and other people buy those widgets and a high percentage of those widgets are faulty, let's take airbags and automobiles for an example. If they're faulty, that's bad for the business. That's bad for the corporation selling those widgets. If enough of them are bad, word's going to get around, people are going to quit buying them, and that company is either going to lose a lot of business or they're going to go out of business because people will find a better alternative. That is your safety, not the regulations. The failed products that a company puts out is your safety. They have a strong incentive to make quality products that will not fail. Do you need proof that quality is the incentive for safety? I mean, this example doesn't have anything to do with safety, really. But if you need proof, where is MySpace? MySpace did not keep up with technology. It did not keep up with what consumers wanted. Word spread. There were better alternatives. And MySpace is basically out of business. They really don't exist in reality anymore. Had they gone to the government and talked to politicians into creating regulations that said you have to go to MySpace if you want to be involved with social media, they'd still be in existence. And you'd have a crappy product in the process because they never upgraded. If 
they're protected, they have no reason to get better. How else do regulations hurt the little guy? Well, let's face it, low-income people, lower-middle-class people, they don't have a lot of money to spend. Adding regulations to the cost of doing business, as I said earlier, businesses don't pay those regulations. They pass on the cost of those regulations. So that makes everything more expensive for you. If you're a person who needs to buy that widget and Company A can make it for $100, you're only going to have to pay $100. However, if government adds on $20 worth of regulations per widget, which as I said, benefits the corporation because they can pass that on and get a higher profit margin on it, you now have to spend $120. That's less money for you to go out and buy other things, whether it's widget A, whatchamacallit B, thingamabob C. It's less money for you and the regulation hurts the little guy. Regulations, which everybody thinks they want to be safe, aren't helping you at all. All they do is negatively affect you as a consumer while it helps the big guy. Because big guys can always afford everything. Little guys can't. So as a result, what we end up with is what I earlier called BIC. Blatant, intentional confusion. Government makes things as confusing as they can because they know the average person can't keep up with it. Big corporations can. Either way, you as an average citizen, you get screwed in the end. So that part, so let's leave it there for the BIC system, what I call BIC. Another thing I want to get into is... This is Woman's Month, and there's a big thing with equal pay for equal work. Well, let's say I am for it. I definitely believe that if you're a woman and you do an equal job, you should get equal pay. In other words, if a woman and a man start at the same job doing the same thing, they deserve equal pay. However, over the long term, that's not going to hold. Because over the course of just a few months, maybe even only weeks, let's take a year. One of the two, whether it's the man or woman, one of the two is going to perform their job better. They're probably going to be quicker at it. One of them may be more knowledgeable at it. One of them may have put in more time during the course of the year. There are so many variables. Equal pay for equal work just doesn't hold consistently. And then you have the thing with uh, the amount of time put in, too. You know, if somebody is doing equal work compared to somebody else, but uh, employer A, employee A has been with the company for two years and employee B has only been with the company for six months, well, yes, employee A should make more money because he's been there longer. He's been more dedicated to the job. We know he's, we know he's reliable. We know he's not going to quit anytime soon, hopefully. There's just so many variables that go into hiring somebody and even more variables that create differences as a 
person is working for them. Now remember, I'm not arguing against women here. Women can do some jobs better than men and vice versa. Men can do some jobs better than women. Uh, firefighting, a lot of times you have to carry a body out of a burning home. Let's face it, men are stronger than women, generally speaking. It's not true in every case, but generally speaking, that's true. You know, a man is going to be a little more reliable in getting another body out of a burning house. On the other hand, it's pretty much been proven that women are better at delegating and running multiple tasks at one time. So if you've got a job that requires a lot of different tasks, women are probably going to be better at that, and they should get more pay than what a man would do. Again, it's not going to be true all the time, but in general, it's probably going to be true. When it comes to knowledge, you know, if your job is nothing more than a knowledge-type job, information-type job, there's no reason to believe that a man is going to be better than a woman or a woman better than a man. Something of that nature is going to be, should work out, I would think, eventually in the long run, to be fairly even. Because you would think there would be just as many men who know more than women and just as many women who know more than what men do. So yes, generally speaking, I am definitely for equal pay, for equal work, but we have to make sure it is equal pay for equal work, for the equal amount of time that is put in, and the equal amount of results. I think a better phrase would be equal pay for equal results, because I've already explained to you that equal work is really hard to determine. So let's come up with a news for it a new phrase, equal pay for equal results, because that's what really matters. As I said earlier in the broadcast, you know, the executive committee of the Libertarian Party was picked last Saturday. There's some men on it. There's some women on it. You know, we were, none of us are paid. It's all volunteer. However, women are just as capable of, well, women bring in just as much as men do to our political party. So yes, equal pay, equal results. Let's make sure it happens. You know, men are not superior to women. Women are not superior to men. Yes, you can pick out individual circumstances where both exist, but the fact is overall, everybody has their own skills, their own talents, and overall, in the long term, everything should work out to where women are making just as much as men are. In another story I have on my computer screen here, um, a headline about a white master. Well, let me just read it. The white headmaster at a Catholic school on Long Island has resigned following reports that he had a black student kneel in apology last month, calling it the African way to apologize. Can we be any more stupid? There is no room in America for this. The headmaster was temp 
temporarily removed. If this is true, he needs to be permanently removed. But let's continue. The headmaster was temporarily removed in from his job at St. Martin de Portes School in Hempstead, New York, over the weekend after a parent, Trisha Paul, went to the local press regarding her 11-year-old son's treatment at the school. The incident was first reported by the New York Daily News. The school issued a statement saying the headmaster had resigned. The leadership of St. Martin de Porres Mariana School continues to review the incident in question to ensure that it is never repeated again in any form. It is important to assure students, parents, and faculty that this incident does not reflect our long-established value of respect for the individual or the established protocols regarding student-related issues. The school added that a new principal, the mother of former students, and certified school administrator, administrator would be leading the school immediately. Paul said she noticed her son seemed sad after school one day last month. When she asked him what happened, he told her he'd been sent to the headmaster's office for working on an assignment in his literature class. Paul said her son's teacher took the assignment, tore it up, and brought her son to the headmaster's office. Once there, Paul said the headmaster told her son to kneel before the teacher in apology. I was filled with all different types of emotion, Paul said. When the headmaster called a few days later to discuss dates for her son's first communion, Paul said she brought the issue up. I asked him what happened. He began to tell me a story about an African family that attended the school many years ago. All oh, this is getting good. The headmaster, according to Paul, told her about a former student whose father had once told him to bow and apologizing, calling it the Nigerian way. Oh, gee, really? I was sad and disappointed, she said. I was hoping to get through to him. In his office, the headmaster told his story again. Paul said this time it was the African way. She said she tried to convey the headmaster that he humiliated and degraded my son. Do I need to <clears throat> do I need to go on? I mean, this is there is no room in society for this. I mean, apology is an apology. You just say I'm sorry. Bowing. Come on. You know, this is Anti-diluvian, I don't know, I was going to say anti-diluvian, but that's before the flood. This is just so antiquated, it's ridiculous. There's no room for this, and that guy needs to be gone. But anyway, well, I covered, I think, about as much as I can in 30 minutes. I'm up to almost 27, so I think we're going to call today, and... I'll see you next time. Um, just a reminder, the show is sponsored by Camp Ridger Seasonings. Products can be found at CampRidger.net. So until next time, be safe. <laughs>